Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At Biltmore, fall is more than just the perfect time to experience the grace and grandeur of America's largest home. It's also the season to savor an award-winning selection from Biltmore's very own winery, then linger for an unforgettable evening of locally sourced seasonal cuisine, from simple and satisfying to fine four-star dining. Fall at Biltmore offers something for every taste. Stay and save up to 20% on select dates at Biltmore.com. Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello there, I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker's here as well. Thank you so much for joining us, and we always are grateful for every little listen. If you want to reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook or MurdochPodcast.com, and we love to hear from you. In fact, we have a bunch of questions we're going to answer from listeners coming up in this episode. Plus, our legal analyst, John Snyder, will join us to break down a lot of the legalese that's happened in the last couple of weeks, kind of get up to date on that. And also, you'll hear some of the comments that you made about John's take on the last uh, episode where Seton was relaying what she had found out from John Marvin, Alex's brother. So Seton, first of all, uh, pronunciation issue. Yes, I was saying that John Marvin took some time to get to the crime scene because he was coming from Okati, but it's actually pronounced Okati. And I'd heard it before. I'd seen the signs and it just didn't put two and two together. Some people were pretty harsh about that, said I had no business doing a podcast, but um, just wanted to clear that up first. All right. I want to get to some of the comments from various places we found in online world. First of all, this person just commented, terrible podcast, just amateurish and unintelligent. This one says that they enjoyed listening to the podcast until this past episode. She said that we come off as Murdoch apologists. It was almost like listening to old family friends of the Murdochs trying to paint them in a better light and defend SLED's inept investigation. It was like the podcast took on a new direction or something. So another person says this feels like a change and blatant attempt to rehabilitate the whole Murdoch law enforcement good old boy system. Very disappointed in this episode, I you know want to tell you right now that there is no connection to us in the Murdochs. Somebody down here in one of the comments said that I think they're in the pocket of the Murdoch family. We're not being paid by the Murdochs. We don't know the Murdochs. Your only conversation with John Marvin has been uh, what we talked about. Right. So we actually had a listener ask us how I got in touch with John Marvin. And I actually just sent him a message and he responded. This is the first time that I've ever spoken to a member of the Murdoch family. Um, We're definitely not paid by the Murdochs. I don't know why you would hire first-time podcasters uh, to be your paid people. So we're not. uh, And we're not family friends, never been invited to a barbecue or anything like that. Uh, Never met him. Somebody said that 
They supposedly had an interview with John Marvin, but he wouldn't talk on air because he doesn't understand what a podcast is. Yeah, right. Uh, it's the yeah. truth. No, he, he's, he's, he, I don't know that he doesn't understand what a podcast is. He just doesn't listen to podcasts. True. I mean, it's true that he didn't want to be on the air. That's just no. the point. We didn't and, make that up. Yeah, we did. I think uh, Nancy commented on our Facebook page. She said she thought it was lame that he didn't want to go on air. And I kind of understand it. If you don't listen to podcasts, you might not be. Plus, he doesn't know us, so he probably just felt more comfortable giving an interview not on air. Somebody did say, it's up to the listener to form an opinion, not the reporter. Seems like most who listen thought Sled made some mistakes. It doesn't mean they're pro-Murdoch. That's right. We're not pro-Murdoch. We, but we interviewed John Marvin. We gave you his side of the story. It is up to you to decide. Yes. Oh, and that's another thing I want to say is we reached out to John Marvin. We've tried to kind of present both sides. And if there are any victims who want to talk to us, we would love to hear from you as well. If there been any of the people who, you know, Alec took their money, that sort of thing. Yes, yes. Uh, and Riley Benson, the uh, reporter, he reached out and said, you know, how to get a hold of John Marvin and whatnot. And I talked to him about, he was one of the first reporters on the scene. It was about 1045 the morning after the murders. And he saw John Marvin walking with law enforcement. So the story there lines up with what John Marvin said. But it's all for you to decide. You can see the last episode. But I want to know if John uh, Snyder, our legal analyst, former district attorney, Former prosecutor, do you have any comments on the thought that we're in the bag for the Murdochs? We are 100% making comments on things as they come. I think uh, if you go back and listen to everything I've said, it's been predictive of how the law is getting applied to the case, not taking a side. There are times when I think one side of lawyers is doing a better job than the other. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good a set of lawyers are. If the facts, as applied to the law, go against somebody, that's how it's going to go. For, for myself and the rest of the team, we don't have an agenda on who's right or wrong. We're providing information and uh, hopefully doing it in an interesting way that people want to keep listening. But but. There is no agenda of ours other than commentary and education. I also want to talk about the crime scene itself. We had somebody on Reddit say, I understand that John Marvin shouldn't have been on the grounds during the investigation, but what usually happens in that situation. Well, he would be allowed to be on the grounds because the crime scene is a taped off area. And that's not the entirety of everything on Moselle. It might not even be the house. How did John Marvin describe the, the scene? So John Marvin said he considered the crime scene when he got there, he saw a area which was approximately 50 to 75 yards, which was taped off. And I, I think that was where Maggie and Paul's bodies were. That's They were covered. Uh, but that I think it was the crime scene. So what we want to point out is the entire Moselle property was not a crime scene, just an area within the Moselle property, right, John? It's a gigantic piece of property. Now, I do think it's fair for people to question how law enforcement conducted investigations down there. I think the very beginning of the story relates to how the boating accident was handled and the issues that, that arose from maybe there being personal relationships that were coloring how people collected evidence. 
So I think those are fair questions to ask. You don't want to judge law enforcement too harshly, but you also want to, I think it's fair to say, did they use best practices? Because at trial, if the state comes back and says, you committed this murder, the defense lawyers are immediately going to say, how do you know he or she committed the murder? There were a thousand people at the crime scene. It could have been any one of those people. And that, and that raises reasonable doubt. So that's, that's an issue, and that's something that law enforcement, you know, they do a lot of training to avoid ever being in that position. And one of the other things we had a lot of comments about was the fact that John Marvin had said he and family members were allowed to enter the Moselle house. And this comment is, how in the world did law enforcement allow the family to spend nights at the house there? And why would they want to? The house should have been processed, but was not. Two things on that comment. One, they did not spend the night there. They just gathered there for a bit and then went to Alex and John Marvin's father's house for the night. Yes. For John Marvin. The second thing in that comment, they say the house wasn't processed. We don't know, but unlikely based on the time frame. Right. It, did, it didn't seem, people do question, and it seems a very, very valid comment is that it was the night of, and it would have been difficult to process that crime scene in that short amount of time. And we don't want to be excuse makers for law enforcement. We're just going to toss out, as John did in the last episode, a possibility is that the house was not considered part of the crime scene. The crime scene could have been just where the bodies were and maybe sled new where the killer or killers came from and exited and the house, which was a hundred yards away, had nothing to do with the actual murders in the eyes of sled, which would mean it wouldn't be part, wouldn't need to be processed. Right. These we, are possibilities. There are possibilities. And we know that they took a SUV, a black SUV into mm-hmm. custody. So that could have also been part of the crime scene. And a law enforcement person uh, texted me or emailed me and said, it's possible that sled or some law enforcement agency took pictures. It was not an official crime scene, but took pictures of the house and the things inside of it before they let people in. Not a fully uh, investigated crime scene, but he says he has done that at times. Right. And I do acknowledge, I I have questions about them being allowed to go into the house. Sled has not released that information. John, do you have any other insight you'd like to add into the fact that family members got back into the home? What's to be assumed you know, after after the initial collection of evidence is people can go back to being in their home. Their presence, while evidence is being collected, has to be cataloged, has to be described by law enforcement for what they were doing and why. They're, you know, they're under some kind of either supervision or they're assisting in the collection of evidence because they may know, like, did he have a handgun? Okay, where's that handgun? Can you show me where the handgun is? That would be normal law enforcement evidence collection. This was a question that came up a few times about Duffy Stone and his office not recusing themselves sooner because he did recuse himself very quickly in, in regards to the Mallard Beach boating accident. And you said one of the things about the prosecutor, he is, and you were one, 
he's not doing the investigating. He is, well, he has people doing it and he's just making sure they're following procedure. That's, that's your main job there, right, John? Your job, your job out there is compliance. You're not, you're not a scientist. You're not, you're not going to testify. Yeah. But just because of Duffy Stone's relationship with the Murdoch family, just for optics. I mean, it does seem like it, it would have been reasonable for him to recuse himself earlier. You don't have a lot of murders happening down there. And so if, if he did his job in, a, in the proper fashion, it, that's, you know, these are questions that defense lawyers can ask him and attack, attack the evidence that way. But I don't, I don't think he did anything wrong by, by being there. Before we get into some of the other legal stuff that's happened over the last couple of weeks, one thing that we talked about off air was how some people are frustrated by the fact that it's been a year you say that may not be all that unusual and there could be reasons why we talk about the csi effect where csi opens with some awesome pool party in miami and suddenly there's a body floating in the pool and in 45 minutes the murderer is going to prison the real life is there's no backlighting in crime labs this is tv and real life don't match up and so where defense lawyers live is in errors made in the collection of evidence in the process used in interviewing witnesses and they try to find inconsistencies to raise reasonable doubt and so on the state side they want to make sure that before they accuse someone of a crime they have all their ducks in a row to make sure that there's no way that reasonable doubt could be had One more listener question was about Corey Fleming's bond. Corey Fleming has received a $100,000 surety bond with a 10% cash option. And to me, that really seemed low considering Alec Murdoch's bond is set at $7 million. So I just kind of wanted to get your opinion. Do you think that is a low bond? I think that South Carolina and other states all have very clear parameters for how bonds are set. And if you remember... The $7 million was maybe one of the highest bonds ever set in South Carolina's history. And so Fleming's bond is way more in line with a, a white-collar crime. So, so 100000 did not seem low based on a nonviolent charge being brought against him. The amount Corey Fleming, now he's alleged to have helped Alec, but the amount of money he got— was in the hundreds of thousands dollar range, as opposed to Alec getting millions of dollars. Does that amount come into play on what a bond is uh, set for? I mean, really, they look at what the crime itself is, not necessarily even the amounts, okay. but are you a harm to the general public if, if you're released? Are you a danger? So that's why, you know, sometimes in murder cases, there's no bond. But in financial crime cases, usually there is a bond, and and sometimes it's relative to the amount of the alleged fraud. Sometimes it's not. Okay. It really he has close ties to the community. At this time, there's not allegations of long time widespread uh, criminal activity for uh, up until. This point, he's been a well-regarded member of, of 
his community. And so I think the court looks at that. They look at where the family is versus Alec, who's unhinged, kind of. As far as we know, he's not sitting on a big pile of, of cash that would allow him to flee. So that's taken into consideration in a bond, right? Whether they can flee or not. Correct. Yes. Okay. So what else we got, Seaton? So next we need to talk about the amended answer that Parker's convenience store has filed to the beach boating accident. In this amended answer, they are alleging maritime law. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. So maritime law is a set of law that, that goes back, coming all the way back from common law in England. <laughs> and so it rules how things happen how conduct is managed on the high seas and its <laughs> tributaries. As a result, where the jurisdiction is for maritime law, this case clearly falls under that related to the boat, the boating accident itself. And so the defense counsel that has been substituted in for the original counsel has done a, his and her job in raising this as an issue. And the effect of that is how liability is apportioned among the people that were on the boat at the time of the accident. So that brings me to my next question. Parker's also cites a complicity defense. Can you explain that to us? So complicity is the people that were on the boat and with uh, Paul at the time of his accident and driving the boat illegally. They were complicit by being on there. Maybe they bought him drinks and or knowing that he was under the influence of alcohol and and potentially other substances. And they still got on the boat with him after he after the you know, the film that we've seen of, of the last time they were all alive. They all knew what condition he was in and they got on the boat anyway. So it's it's a similar argument to a contributory negligence argument. And this is the ugly side of the law where defense lawyers in injury cases basically are, their allegations against the the victims are, you guys were just as bad off as the guy that you're accusing of doing bad things. And it's, you know, it doesn't sit well with anyone to read that. It's just part of the adversarial system that we have in the United States. Andrew Davis, who we've had on the show, reporter for uh, WSAV, he had this report about Parker's legal team shifting blame to Mallory Beach, who died in the accident. And they they, uh, did this report on March 24th. Do you think it's accurate that that is something that a defense team would do? It is what defense lawyers do. In any wrongful death case, they will allege that the, the decedent is the reason of the death, not necessarily the defendant. Again, it's unfortunate and ugly and feels bad to discuss it or to even think that that's a possibility, which is one of the reasons South Carolina does comparative negligence, where Okay, if you're at fault 10% and you're awarded a million dollars, your your judgment is going to be reduced to 900. Okay. South Carolina ha- actually has a much kinder uh, treatment of 
victims in personal injury cases than than other states. So I guess it would be like, say, uh, a guy's driving a car, he gets in an accident, but the passenger's not wearing a seatbelt. They fly through the windshield. The defense attorney would say, well, they weren't wearing a seatbelt. That or he was drunk driving and the the launched individual was seen on video goading him into doing one more shot of Jaeger. In fact, the worst part of defense legal work where you're where you come in to say the only reason that the person's passed away was their own behavior. We want to mention one thing before we leave the maritime law conversation is that the defense attorney, if it gets it switched to maritime law, it does what to the complicity defense and, and that? What it does is it, it takes it more to a contributory negligence standard where South Carolina has comparative negligence. This means that if you were at fault at all, you cannot recover from the plaintiff. And so okay. they are taking a very hard line in their defense to where it's possible the plaintiffs could recover nothing. And so that's why it's of note to see these defenses added uh, to the lawsuit at this time. So now we're going to move on to the jailhouse tapes. So just to refresh everyone's memory, the jailhouse calls were between Alec Murdoch and his family members, and they were released to a Fitz News organization, and his lawyers are fighting against further calls being released. We're now on to the fifth judge, which is Judge Curry of Florence. Just on a side note, the interim jail director, Shane Kitchens, has now resigned from working as the interim jail director at the jail where Alec Murdoch is being held. We know that there has been a docket report issued by Judge Curry, and the bench trial deadline is not until March 23rd of 2023. So I wanted to ask John first, does he think there should be some sort of emergency hearing? The damage is done if you believe that the tapes shouldn't have been released. You can't unrelease tapes. Your remedy at this point is monetary or or a civil rights claim that you can't get a fair trial, therefore your criminal cases need to be dismissed. Those are the two possible outcomes in this matter. And Having a trial date set a year from now is actually not atypical or unusual. So that no, nothing about that is odd. Now, what would be subject to potential emergency litigation would be making sure that no more tapes were, were ever released or that there'd be sanctions for violating a court order if you released more of the, the audio. Well, because I think Fitz News, I think they've only released a portion of the tapes that they received. They have more tapes available to them. Are they allowed to release those tapes at this point? Uh, until there's an order saying you can't, they could, but that doesn't mean they won't be sued for releasing them. So I also want to talk about Kitchen's response, where he says he didn't release the tapes. That was I found that really interesting, and it sounds like passing of the buck has already begun. So, John, what's your feeling on that? So he's he has been sued both in his official capacity and his individual capacity. And so what, what we saw filed uh, the last couple of weeks was his answer to the lawsuit 
in his role individually. And and in that answer, which public record, he he contends that he did not release any of the audio tapes that are being alleged to have violated the privileges that are under the Title Three and and uh, for for jailhouse tape release. And so he's basically saying. You guys can sue me, but I had nothing to do with them actually being released. Even though I'm, even though I'm the boss that was in charge, I didn't personally give these to any outside source. Okay, so I know you just mentioned Title Three and Omnibus, and that was actually a listener question. I guess the case originally fell under civil rights, but now is under Title Three and Omnibus. So, can you explain what that means? It's a law specifically on the how tapes are released and handled for inmates in correctional facilities. And so the allegation is that there have been violations of both civil rights uh, in general, and then it cites just the specific laws that govern that. The last legal thing we need to talk about is Ellick's confession of judgment of $4.3 million to the Satterfield family. He said he was going to do this at his bond hearing in December, and now he has filed that. So the big question is, where will the money come from? John, as you had called it, Alex has denied his inheritance from Maggie. And we also now have some probate records available from Maggie's estate. In her estate, there were $4.3 million of gross assets, most which were real estate. There was very little cash. Uh, There was, I guess, a Mercedes, just not a lot. No stocks or bonds, which I, I thought was kind of unusual. But there was also $2.2 million of encumbrances to Palmetto State Banks for mortgages and also some other bills. So the co-receivers who have been appointed, how do they determine what order creditors are paid? That is dictated by law. So it starts with secured creditors. And not in this case, but kind of in general, it would be Mortgage the mortgage holders, secured creditors, meaning those that have judgments against them, and then unsecured creditors. And so that would be the people that somebody owes money for their house to. Then it would be Palmetto P- State Bank, right? So Palmetto State Bank would be first in line. Palmetto State Bank would be first in line with as they have a mortgage on the property. We don't know what Alex financial situation is. We have not seen his records publicly. So that's just Maggie's we know about. So Ella could have millions in somewhere. He could, but I, but I think one of the interesting things I saw reading the, the probate filing was he's, you know, some of these say half interest. And so where Maggie had a half interest, that means Alec had a the other half. And so if it was 12,000 for Maggie, that means it's only 12,000 for Alec. And so you you can glean a little bit a joint checking account. There's four thousand dollars. Well, that's half of that's Alice's and half of that's hers. But could he have another checking account that is just in his he could name? Have, yeah, he could have all kinds of other stuff set up. And now this judgment is that he's done in court that can be recorded as a judgment, and that'll be for four point three million dollars. Well, he confessed judgment to his brothers and one of his law partners, too. That happened, I don't know, back, there's, there's been so much legal stuff. I think that was back in December, but don't quote me on that. So then that goes in list of who got into the courthouse first, which we talked about that very early on 
on this program about you know why why would they, why would they rush to the courthouse and it's like quite simply because you want to be first in line. So the confessed judgment, how does that play on the criminal law? Is that just an automatic guilty? Is is it still go through? How, how does that work? It could be used as an admission against him, but the civil standard is lower than yeah. the criminal standard. More, you know, you've got beyond a reasonable doubt in the criminal cases, and more likely than not in the civil cases. It appears to be just from pure conjecture that he is probably going to plead guilty at some point to this. To, to some of these things where he's, you know, already entering into court records that he's g- confessing to his obligation, which would be consistent with what he did at his initial bond hearing as well on the, on these matters. And one other thing to watch in all of this is what does that then mean for Mallory Beach's family? Because they're last in line of whatever's left of, of Paul's estate. So these are all things to watch as we factor in the cascading of what assets are left after insurance policies to satisfy the claims of the plaintiffs in these various suits. John Snyder, former DA and former defense attorney. Thank you for hanging with us. Appreciate it. Always my pleasure and talk to you soon. The last thing to hit before we take off is about the check to the police chief. Explain, Seton. So Fitz News uncovered a check from Alex Murdoch to Yemassee Police Chief Gregory Alexander in the amount of $5,000. They said this check was cut on July 9th of 2021. Obviously, this is pretty interesting because it was shortly after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. Alexander is currently running for the Hampton County Sheriff's, and he's Interestingly enough, received campaign donations from many PMPED members um, and other Murdoch connections, including Lee Cope, Austin Crosby, Daniel Henderson, Graham Holes, Randolph Murdoch IV, Murdoch Kabuta, John Parker, and Corey Fleming. Andrew Davis of WSAV in Savannah, who we've had on, uh, he interviewed Mr. Alexander, and he said that there was no impropriety and the check was written in March and was intended to be a loan to his parents. Alexander said he didn't know if the loan was paid back. And this sheriff would be in some way involved in the beginning of the investigation until SLED took over, so that seems weird to some people. And also this sheriff has had a little controversy in the past According to uh, Michael DeWitt of Bluffton Today and the Hampton Guardian, he's good. If you can read him, uh, do find him. He's also in Greenville News a lot. Um, He reported, Michael DeWitt did, in May of 2012 that Alexander had been indicted by the state grand jury. He was accused of stealing more than 10 grand from motorists during traffic stops. And he was, though, eventually acquitted of those charges. So also interesting is Gregory Alexander's sister-in-law is Tanya Alexander, and she was the judge that presided over the bond hearing about the whole murder, alleged murder, suicide stuff. So that's also another connection, but maybe not surprisingly, because everyone there seems to be connected connected in some way. And a couple of uh, listeners checking in, and you can also do it through Murdoch Podcast Facebook page and MurdochPodcast.com. 
SJ said, I really enjoyed everything that John had to say in episode 46. I was even encouraged to remember to always do what is right and not what is easy. And she goes on to say, the hosts are natural and kind and funny. Oh, thank you. And they do it without trying to create drama or be sensational. And also uh, another listener who goes by used TikToker, the Murdoch podcast to listen to. No tabloid journalism here. Thanks for being professional. All right. Thanks, guys. That wraps that. Reach out to us, as we told you. We are always looking to get your questions and your feedback, and we try to answer them if we can, and we try to get better every time. We're grateful, and we'll talk soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.